Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. I always say 10 by 9 reflects the full range of the human experience and we have it covered in the three stories on this podcast all told at different events and on various themes. Get me my guitar from the store, he said. <laughs> Pencil Stein children, we're going to learn a song, a Victorian song. I was about to take these young people down what the great American philosopher Ned Flanders from The Simpsons called premarital doodly. He howled and howled like a dog brutally beaten by a hitherto loving owner. And he repeatedly cried out in a loud voice, Where are you, Eva? So you can expect the unexpected. The singing teacher with a song in his heart. An ill-advised foray into eroticism. And finally, a heartbreaking testimony to love and loss. Okay, let's get started. And this story was told in January in our home venue, The Black Box in Belfast, which is where we started 10x9 in 2011. The theme was Fresh Start, and here's Rhonda Glasgow. Who's got the green felt tip? Mr Roberts asked, sounding more irritated than angry. The class looked at each other blankly. Ryan had it, but he left the lid off and it dried up, so it did said a boy called Michael, who was sitting at the desk beside Mr. Robert's desk. Another boy sitting across from him, Ryan, I was guessing, looked like he was about to lift his fist to Michael. The atmosphere in the room became quite tense. The green felt tip, I was thinking. One. I looked at the photocopied maps of Scandinavia I had set in front of each child. I had just explained how these mountainous countries had not enough flat land for fields, so their Viking inhabitants had taken their boats to the attack and invade other countries, including Ireland. The class had responded well, and I hadn't anticipated that the map activity would cause any problems. After all, I had a lovely example on an acetate sheet, ready to put on the overhead projector to show them. I thought I was very well prepared, but it turned out I wasn't. This was the mid-1990s, and it was my first lesson with this teacher's class as part of a support programme from the Belfast Education and Library Board, as was. My new job was to help with the delivery of the recently launched primary school history curriculum. I was to take courses and also to work with teachers in their classrooms. I had only been teaching a few years myself, so it was a bit daunting, to be honest. The school's programme began with stage one, where I taught the class and the teacher observed. Stage two was team teaching together, and stage three was me observing the teacher. Or that was the theory. In practice, no one ever wanted to teach while I watched, and so I almost always ended up doing most of the teaching myself. Each school taking part was also offered a number of paid subcover days for planning. Free subcover days were catting up to schools, especially to hard-pressed teaching principals. Mr Roberts hadn't been a principal very long and seemed to be struggling to balance all his responsibilities. He had a perpetually distracted air, which when coupled with a tendency to look over your shoulder rather than at your face, gave him a slightly nervous twitch. He was a very busy man, balancing the roles of teacher, principal, often caretaker, patrolman, dinner supervisor, or whatever else was needed. 
His school was a very small controlled primary school in a large Catholic, largely Catholic area. The staff room and classrooms were pressurised as the principal and the three other colleagues battled to deliver this new curriculum. On the first day when I began to teach this class, Mr Roberts took the opportunity to mark some spellings and fill in some official looking forms. I had a feeling then that even stage one of the process wasn't going to be easy. After the green felt tip standoff, Mr Roberts looked at the blank maps and suggested that someone give out the crayons. There was a bit of a tussle between two children who grabbed an old quality street tin which was sitting on a bookshelf. The winning child opened it and declared that there were none left. The tension in the room rose a notch as the class watched Mr Roberts for his next suggestion. He pursed his lips and asked Michael, the boy at the front, to go next door and borrow their crayons. Michael shook his head. I was surprised he was openly defying Mr Roberts, as he seemed more of a sort of wheedling, overtly helpful type of pupil rather than the openly disobedient. (laughs) Michael, said Mr Roberts more sternly. No go, said Michael in a world-weary voice. (laughs) That's Mrs Malloy's crayon tin, and she told me on no uncertain terms (laughs) they were not to leave her classroom. The class turned back to Mr Roberts, all having apparently forgotten that I was there. Mr Roberts pressed his lips together and a buzz of noise started as the children discussed whether or not Michael should give it another go. Then Ryan shouted over the din, Ask Miss Smith and P2. P2 of loads of crayons, chipped in someone at the back. And she's new, added Ryan in a low voice. This information seemed to remind Mr Roberts he was actually in charge of the whole school and he sent the ever-helpful Michael to borrow them. The class cheered when Michael returned with a new box of crayons and we finally started to colour in the Scandinavian lowlands green. When the bell rang for lunch, Mr Roberts thanked me for my interesting lesson and said he would see me next week. He started marching purposefully towards the dinner hall. A couple of smaller children pushed past me in the corridor, their eyes on the receding Mr Roberts. Sir, sir, I need a dinner ticket. So do I. Mr Roberts didn't speak to children or break his stride, but dug deep into the pocket of his worn tweed jacket and pulled out a string of pink tickets which fluttered in the air. He gave one to each child and they ran ahead to join the rest of the children who were already in the queue at the canteen door. I knew pink tickets were only for children who paid for their dinner. Uh, Most children wouldn't need these tickets, I suspected. However, Mr Roberts seemed to have honed down the usual school admin for recording dinners into a very smooth operation, I thought. (laughs) I headed to the car park and resolved to research the resources cupboard of the BELB for a set of felt tips, which I would then keep in the boot of my car. A few months later, on the other side of the city, I went to work with another teaching principal, an older man called Mr Mallon. He wasn't as manic as Mr Roberts, obviously having got used to the demands of his job but he had a similar look of distraction when you were talking to him. His school was a small maintained school in a Protestant area. When I started this job, the first hurdle was getting straight in my head Northern Ireland's two main school tribes, reflecting, of course, Northern Ireland's actual tribes. There were controlled primary schools and maintained primary schools, and then some other initials I'd never heard of, which was never quite sure what they stood for or which side of the fence they were on. Of course, when you went into the school, the tribe was often pretty clear. I had called to see Mr Mallon just as he was finishing teaching for the day. He gestured for me to wait in the corridor as he called out information in a stream of consciousness. Homework, buses, swimming kits, finishing with a course of in the name of the father. When the corridors cleared, we went to his office and I explained how the support process worked and the subcover which was available. 
news of the free sub cover made his eyes light up, and I just knew he wasn't going to spend those days planning with me. I also had a fair, stage, fair idea that once again, we weren't going to go beyond stage one. When I arrived the next week for a day of planning with the unit, Life in Victorian Times, Mr. Mallon wasn't in his office or in the staff room. He was in his classroom. The sub-cover day was already used up, apparently. Sure, I'll give them something to do and we can work in the classroom, he said. I had no choice but to agree, and he sent a child for a spare chair for me to sit at his desk. The child returned with a fairly small pupil chair for me, <laughs> and I opened my planning file. The class did, for the most part, work on the task he had given them. It was Mr. Mallon who seemed unable to concentrate, jumping from one possible lesson to all sorts of issues I knew nothing about, school dinners, special needs provision, inspectors. I found it difficult enough to concentrate with 30 bodies in front of us and all the associated whispering and pencil sharpening. I remember I had a planning grid for this unit I'd used before and thought if I was going to deliver the lessons to this class, then this is what I would use. I started to tell Mr. Mallon about this when he seemed to have a eureka moment of his own. Music, he said. Victorian music. Hmm. I murmured non-committally. I was by now wedded to my own plans and had no intention of doing a random lesson on music. Sean, get me my guitar from the store, he said. <laughs> Pencil Stein children, we're going to learn a song, a Victorian song. He beamed at me. The boy brought the guitar and Mr. Mallon strapped it on. No one but me looked at all surprised by this turn of events. <laughs> I sat in my small chair. <clears throat> and watched as Mr. Mallon strummed and sang his way through my grandfather's clock. <laughs> he smiled encouragingly at me as the class began to join in. I sang in a band Friday nights, he whispered. Wedding parties, all sorts. Really, I said. But then, after a few minutes, I found myself joining in. It stopped short never to go again <laughs> when the old man died. <laughs> Thanks for that, Rhonda. Who'd be a teacher, eh? And if, like Rhonda and all our 10 by 9 you have a story to tell or even just a germ of an idea for a story, then get in touch at 10by9.com and I'll help you bring it to fruition. Okay then, let's get on to our second story. It was March and the theme was good. And Paul Whittington starts his story with a question we've all asked ourselves. Do you think I'm beautiful? She asked, her eyebrows rising slightly. Absolutely stunning, he said. She leaned in and kissed him on the lips. They separated, both a little shocked at what had just happened. Jonathan caressed her cheek. Catherine leant her head towards his hand and closed her eyes. He gently drew her head towards him and kissed her again, longer and hungrier than before. She responded enthusiastically. His hand moved down and cupped. I sat back in my chair and looked what I had just written. I had driven into a literary lane leading only in one direction. I felt my cheeks colouring. 
I'd lost the run of myself. <laughs> there was only one way this story would go now. I had never attempted to write an in intimate scene for many reasons, one being the advice someone gave me when I started to dip my toe in writing stories. Never write anything you wouldn't want your mother to read. <laughs> At that time, I thought this was rather limiting. Another reason... Another reason was the sheer embarrassment of it. Even the thought of it made me blush. The characters Jonathan and Catherine in the story, after nearly 11,000 words, had met, survived a terrible ordeal, and were now finding an attraction to each other. I liked these two characters and cared about them. But hey, this attraction had led me to this point. In my other stories, some of which had involved people finding love, they had never ventured down this road being brought up in the home where my father was a Methodist preacher, the correct order of the affairs of the heart were fall in love, get married, and then enjoy intimacy of each other. I was about to take these young people down what the great American philosopher Ned Flanders from The Simpsons called <laughs> premarital doodly. As I pondered what to do, I remember a conversation I had while waiting for an author who was taking a writer's group at Belfast Central Library. About 20 of us were sitting around a large conference table, waiting for her to make her entrance. Conversations were forced. I was happy just to wait in silence when the lady next to me said, Are you a writer? Well, no, not really. I dabble a bit. Her face revealed a flicker of pleasure. Then she continued... Nothing published, I presume. Somewhat irritated by the direction in this conversation, I replied, well, Netflix are considering one of my stories. <laughs> I would have, but actually I just said, no, sadly not. <laughs> well, keep it up. Don't give up hope. I have several things published. She went on to list the stories and articles that have been published. Sadly, it sounded an impressive list. She sighed and continued. I'm waiting for an offer for my novel to be published. Congratulations, I said. She nodded her appreciation. Then gently touching my arm, leant in, and just above a whisper said, I'm now venturing into erotic fiction. <laughs> you mean Mills and Boone, I replied. <laughs> As if, really, Mills and Boone? She giggled, amused at my naivety. What I write would definitely not be published by Mills and Boone she said in a conspiratorial whisper. At the moment, our author arrived and she gave me one more nugget of wisdom, one piece of good advice. Erotic fiction is very difficult to do. Thankfully, her attention was now on the author and I tried to concentrate on the tips on how to get a book published. It took me a while to take in the sterling advice that was on offer. The conversation with the lady had been somewhat disconcerting. The advice the author in charge of the workshop proffered was not new to me, but was good to be reminded. I am fortunate to be part of a very supportive writers group. They are an encouraging bunch, and under the guidance of Maddie, all these points have been covered. I was staring at the screen. The words his hand moved down and cupped, followed by a flashing cursor, somewhat seemed to be in the largest font, standing out daring me to continue. The most sensible thing would be to delete and go for the safe, safe option. They fell into each other's arms in a 
passionate embrace. Next morning, the sun streamed through the window <laughs> on their entwined bodies. With my finger hovering over the delete button, Maddie's words about pushing yourself out of your comfort zone rang in my ears. Although I don't think this is what she had envisaged. <laughs> anyway, how hard could it be? So for the next hour, I gave full flight to my imagination and wrote the passionate first intimate adventure of Jonathan and Catherine. I hoped I'd captured the longing, the tenderness of their touch, the excitement and the fulfillment of their desires. When I finished, breathing slightly heavily, <laughs> and strangely in need of a cigarette, <laughs> even though I don't smoke, I surveyed what I had written. I was surprised to see how much there was. It is always good to leave some time before reviewing what you have written and also to let someone else read it. Well, that was never going to happen. <laughs> it was about a week later that I returned to the story. I was not going to let anybody read it, but on Microsoft Word, there is a, in the review tab, there is a read aloud option. So I went into an empty room stuck my headphone speakers into the laptop, placed them securely into my ears and hit the play button. As I listened, I kept a wary eye in case someone would enter the room, and as the computer-generated monotone voice spoke what I had written, I felt several emotions. <laughs> I blushed brightly. Could it have been due to the exquisite and elegant prose tinged with a little excitement? No, it was, it was dreadful writing. As I listened to what I had written, all the tenderness and excitement that I had been striving for were absent. It came across almost as a series of bullet points. <laughs> Not the tender but exciting encounter between two young lovers. It was as arousing as a 10-minute cold shower. <laughs> I have grown to like and care for Catherine and jo Jonathan and this was a terrible disservice to them. The lady at the workshop gave me good advice and was correct. It is hard to write erotic fiction. In future, if ever I have a couple who are about to take me down the path, I will write, they fell into each other's arms in a passionate embrace. The sound of the waves crashing on the shore woke them next morning as the sun streamed through the window on their entwined bodies. Thank you so much, Paul. By total coincidence, we were having a, I was having a conversation with some uh, ladies up the front, and they were saying, have you ever thought about doing like an erotic 10 by 9? <laughs> yes, of course we have, but as Paul is testament, I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> oh, no. Mm, 10 by 9, after dark. You never know. Anyway, thank you, Paul. What a great story. And keep writing. Okay, here's the bit you all skip. 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. It's important to us that it should be open to all, but also that storytellers shouldn't feel pressure for their stories to reach a commercial level. There's enough pressure as it is. But you can support us at Patreon or make a one-off donation via PayPal using our email. Details are at the website 10by9.com. We are very grateful to everyone who has supported us. Thank you. But also, we just want you to sit back, 
relax and enjoy. On to our third story now and very much a change of pace. The theme was agreement and we were at Belfast Lyric Theatre. There's a tiny bit of feedback from the mic, but I promise it doesn't affect the quality of the story that comes from Lorna Dunn. My father, George Irvin, was born and raised in the East End of Glasgow. If you had ever met him, he would unquestionably have recounted to you the story of the love of his life. Within an hour of meeting you, no one escaped. And no matter how often he told his story, his eyes would tear over as he remembered that pivotal day when he first saw Eva McCrimmon. He was 12. (laughs) He fell in love, decided he would marry her. And as was always the case, when dad decided something would happen, it happened. He used to upset me by declaring emphatically that he could not and would not live without her and that when she went, he'd go too. I couldn't have disagreed with him more. Surely his life would still be worth living. After all, he still had us. In my childhood, Dad was sports mad and would have become an England supporter before he'd have missed Saint and Greasy on Saturday's football focus. Mum was more cerebral and quieter. She'd studied at the Royal Academy of Music in Glasgow and took me and my two sisters to piano, violin and singing lessons. In the spring of 2018, my parents visited their old friends for a holiday in Portugal. The rest of the year, they lived in the beautiful seaside town of North Berwick, within walking distance of my middle sister, Fiona. In June of 2018, I received a call from Dad. There was an uncharacteristic quaver in his voice, and it wasn't hard for me to guess the reason. He just about managed to say the words. Mum had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Despite the forewarning, I was still dazed, trying to absorb the appalling news, while simultaneously trying, unsuccessfully, to comfort my panic-struck, love-struck dad. Just three weeks later, Mum was in liquids only, and we could see her weakening rapidly. She also had early dementia, but she knew us all. When she asked us what was wrong, we simply explained that she'd been in hospital and needed to rest. She accepted this calmly. Dad, on the other hand, was unable to accept anything about the situation. My older sisters, Elaine, Fiona and I, understood the grim direction of travel. But Dad was still talking about taking Mum on holiday abroad next summer. He tried desperately to feed her strawberries. When she ate one, he was adamant that she was getting better. Everyone tried to make the very best of their time with Mum. She and I liked to sit in the two old easy chairs in the kitchen, looking out onto the garden in yellow sunshine with the French windows open. The birds chirped cheerfully to us while we sat in an incongruous state of contentment 
and communion, holding hands and talking. A few weeks after a diagnosis, Mum was moved into hospital. It wasn't any old hospital. It was a nine-bed cottage hospital within walking distance of Mum and Dad's house called the Eddington. We were allowed in whenever we wanted and Mum had French windows opening onto a veranda and garden just outside her room and the birds continued to sing for her. The three of us sat for many hours, we too singing to Mum. Ever the perfectionist, her final words to us were spoken as we sang to her. That's too high for you. (laughs) Two days after that, Dad had to undergo a planned heart bypass. There'd been much debate about what to do about this, considering Mum's decline, but the doctors told him in no uncertain terms that he had to have it or he risked dying himself. For once, he accepted the advice. One evening, I came home from visiting Mum and stood in silence in their garden. The scent of flowers, damp, freshly cut grass and summer dew saturated the balmy air. The beauty of the night surrounded me with its aching consolation and I knew with a strange certainty that it would be Mum's last night and stood in the gloaming saying tearfully to the luminous lilac and orange sky, Goodbye, Mum. In the morning, Elaine came to tell me what I knew. The three of us went silently to her bedside, where she lay in peace at last. The same day, I visited my dad after his bypass operation. My dad, my security as a child was all tubed up, half-naked and as vulnerable as a baby. Without any warning, searing tenderness flooded up my chest cavity out of my eyes. He'd asked us not to tell him if Mum had died until at least two days after his operation for fear it might kill him. So I said nothing, held his hand and pretended that Mum hadn't just died. We'd all agreed that we needed to postpone Mum's funeral until Dad was ready to attend. When he did come home and we told him that his dear Eva had died, he howled and howled like a dog brutally beaten by a hitherto loving owner. And he repeatedly cried out in a loud voice, Where are you, Eva? Three of us looked at each other despairingly. Meanwhile, our children's lives continued, including A-level results and the requisite trips home. One day, as we all walked past the city hall, Elaine phoned. That tone, the wavering voice. When she asked if I was sitting down, I knew I didn't want to hear it. Dad had hours to live. It was heart failure. It was beyond belief. We hadn't even got to mum's funeral yet. Weren't there rules somewhere that said you had to be allowed to grieve one parent before you lost the second one? Went to bed, 
knowing I wouldn't sleep. And at 3am, my mobile buzzed and Dad died 10 minutes ago, glared coldly at me from my phone's glowing screen. Somehow, Dad had undertaken to die the day before Mum's funeral. Had he made his own decision to go as he'd always discussed? If he had, was it maybe understandable in the face of such overwhelming loss? Thirteen of us gathered at my parents' house in North Berwick and each of us experienced the same sense of bafflement. Where had they both gone? They were there a few weeks ago watching Wimbledon and reading the Times. I wandered round the house sitting in the two easy easy chairs where mum and I had sat holding hands sat on the garden bench where Dad and I had discussed the five stages of grief. Never got past denial. His words came back to me again. When your mother goes, I'm going too. Soon three black cars arrived announcing the start of Mum's funeral. Elaine, Fiona and I all travelled in the same one. And on the journey to the crematorium in Edinburgh, we sang in three-part harmony. It was our way of bringing Mum into the proceedings. The driver stared at us in the rearview mirror, bemused. The seven young adults wept audibly through the entire service. We didn't have the luxury, as we were doing the eulogies and I was last. The three of us belted out the hymns to help us hold it together. And because that is what mum would have done. I'd cried every time I'd practiced my speech, but a weird calmness took over in the moment. And as I stood up, I looked around at an array of much-loved faces. Our precious Glasgow relatives and mum and dad's close friends gathered beside me like a rearguard battalion. And now I understood why people turned up to funerals, even if they're not related. It's surely one of the greatest yet simplest acts of human solidarity we can ever provide. And so exactly one week later, we waited at the same house for the same three cars to take us to the same crematorium and the same church. All the same people attended Dad's funeral. My sisters who'd been with Dad when he died explained that the doctor had told them that he was experiencing heart failure. He'd asked them with a look of incredulous relief. Is this it then? And when they replied in the affirmative, Dad had laughed and ordered an iron brew. <laughs> we did a fair bit of research into what doctors call broken heart syndrome. It's thought that a surge of stress hormones, such as adrenaline, damages the heart after an intense physical or emotional event. It seemed you really could die of a broken heart. On reflection, I'd always been angry at Dad when he said those maddening words, whenever your mum goes, I'm going to. But as I look back over the events of that summer, would I really have preferred to see him sitting in his house, desolate and disconsolate without my mum? No, not if I was honest with myself. 
to come to agree with him and to find my peace with him. Wouldn't any of us choose to go on holiday abroad in the spring, die in the summer at the same time as our spouse, surrounded by our children and our grandchildren? <laughs> Dad had always got what he wanted, and he'd done it one last time. Finally, I was ready to let him have his way. Thank you so much, Lorna. What a beautiful, heartbreaking story. And thank you for telling it. It's a wonderfully humbling experience to be allowed into other people's lives. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website, which includes some special events over the summer. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And you can email us on story at 10by9.com. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app, please. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. Margaret McClory, Leanne McConville and Chris O'Donoghue. The wonderful people at the Black Box, our home venue. The incredible and generous audiences we encounter wherever we go. And of course, all our storytellers. But especially Rhonda Glasgow. Paul Whittington and Lorna Dunn. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.